I'm Professor Shane Greenstein, and you're listening to the Harvard Business School Digital Initiative Seminar, a premier seminar series that hosts thinkers and scholars who are pushing forward research on the digital transformation of the economy by conducting and connecting with cutting-edge leaders, equipping leaders, and building community, the digital initiative seeks not just to study, but also to shape digital transformation. To learn more, check out digital.hbs.edu. All right, it's, it is a, a, a great pleasure um, to uh, have everyone here today. I welcome you uh, for Erica Groshen and, and Susan Helper to uh, tell us a bit about um, uh, automated vehicles and the, mostly the labor market and all kinds of other things about automated vehicles. Yeah. And uh, we're really looking forward to it. Um, our usual pattern is to go around the room and have everyone uh, introduce themselves and their affiliation to help that, uh, our speakers uh, understand where the audience is coming from. So uh, I'm Shane Greenstein. I'm part of the uh, Technology Operations and Management Unit, or otherwise known as the TOM Unit. I'm Rafael Nassadun, and I'm part of the Strategy Unit. I'm Neil Thompson. I'm at the Lab for Innovation Science, and I'm at uh, MIT in the Computer Science I'm Chiara Farnato, and I'm in the Technology Operations Management. Julia Arnuz, Tom. Uh, Mike Luca, I'm in negotiation organizations and markets. I'm not sure if that clarifies well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Liz Sarley, I'm with the Digital Initiative. I'm Dave Hama with the Digital Initiative. Uh, Diane Williams, computer scientist, AR entrepreneur, and alumna of MIT Sloan and Harvard. I'm Michael Els, I'm in the marketing department here. Hi, I'm Natalia Wright, and I'm in the strategy unit, doctoral student. Hi, Ram Koning. I'm in the strategy unit here. I'm Alan, uh, coming from MIT Sloan Board Studies Group. Frank Nagel, I'm in the strategy group. Hi, uh, Andy Wu, in the strategy unit. Marco Gazzini, TLM. Tony Moreno from the Technology and Operations Management Unit. Jane Cummins with the Digital Initiative. Tanya Cummins with the Digital Initiative. Sarah Metcalf, MIT Frank. Uh, Karen Herman from the Research Division. That's right. I'm Mark Stapp. I'm the Faculty of School of Engineering and Sciences. Uh, Chris Duke, uh, Natalia Metcalf, Mr. Director. George Serafini, Natalia Metcalf, Mr. Director. Great. And Jane Cummins with the Digital Initiative. Thank you. 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 Well, and I'll throw out that I'm also a visiting scholar with the Upjohn Institute for Employment Research. In addition to those affiliations, we have two more co-authors who are not here, John Paul McDuffie, uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, and uh, Charles Carson, who uh, was working at uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, so, um, and I guess I should mention this work was sponsored by SAFE, which is Securing America's Future Energy. It's a very interesting foundation with a lot of corporate and retired military people who are interested in um, uh, energy independence. And so they uh, sort of see this as potentially one of the reasons they were interested in this is understanding what's the role of 
autonomous vehicles and energy, which, so they had a, uh, a role, no, uh, the role they had is in developing the scenarios for AV penetration, which Erica will talk about. But other than that, our conclusions are our own and uh, whatever. Um, okay. So we want to uh, do three things. Uh, we want to talk about lessons from past innovations. Um, and then kind of size and time AV's impact on workers. And one of the things I think we're going to do is really a theme sort of throughout this is that there's been a lot of concern about employment impacts, numbers of jobs lost. And so we're going to spend a bunch of time trying to figure out how much that is. But we're also going to say that there's a couple of other things that we should be looking at as well, and that is the length of the transition. Uh, and also the income effects, both short-term transitions when people lose jobs, how much money do they, they lose, and then long-term, what do the new jobs look like? Um, so we'll have something to say about that, and then we'll talk about sort of next steps, policy impacts. Uh, okay. So obviously, innovation is not new. Uh, in the um, paper, we have several cases that are chosen uh, somewhat for convenience, somewhat because there's good research, and somewhat to kind of illustrate some key points. Uh, maybe to say a little bit about each one. Uh, the key point, I think, about the Industrial Revolution is a huge, huge increase in productive capacity for about the first 50 years of this innovation. Wages fell standards of living fell. So it's sort of saying you can have you know, really big impact in productive capacity and have it not only not shared, but have it have a negative impact on most of the population. Uh, and there's a, a McKinsey study actually that, so this is this, uh, the conclusion that they drew is that one of the key things to reversing this was new institutions. So the rise of unions, the rise of public education, that's what turned it around and created appropriate building mechanisms. Uh, a second thing is autopilot in aviation. So you can sort of think about uh, there's uh, uh, we have two pilots in a plane. Do we really need, for technical reasons, two pilots? Uh, so some of it is there actually are a lot of contingencies. So there are some figures that say a pilot actually is busy for about seven minutes of a flight. Uh, but you know, obviously, the average figure doesn't tell you about the times when you really want them to be, you know, landing the plane in the <laughs> river or whatever. Uh, and there's also uh, this is a point that our co-author John Paul uh, emphasizes a lot of sort of moral crumple zone. That sort of you know, there's some ethics involved here, and somehow people feel more comfortable when there's a person who's in charge. Uh, will we? Will that change over time? Um, computer numerical control and machine tools. Um, this is a kind of example of sort of technological possibility. Uh, so there's a, a lot of very interesting research done on how this was uh, implemented. Initially, uh, the, the research was, was sponsored by the Air Force. Um, and initially, there were kind of two technologies considered. There was one that was very abstract. You code, you type in a bunch of abstract symbols into a computer, and that controls this machine tool. That's the one that was developed. The one that was considered and rejected was called record playback, where you had a record, like a, an old LP, uh, that would record the, the movements of a skilled machinist. So you wouldn't translate it into this abstract field, but you would draw on the existing skill of the machinist. This would have been much simpler. Uh, 
although ultimately you know, less powerful, I think, than what we got. But a lot of the Air Force's ideology around this, there's a lot of work by, uh, by David Noble and others, that the ideology of this is we have these pesky machinists on the shop floor, we have power, they have power, we don't like it, we want to remove them. And so that, you know, innovation doesn't just fall from the sky, it's actually driven by uh, you know, social views. Uh, and, and so this, again, is things we might consider about how we design uh, AVs and particularly how we think about uh, how they're adopted in trucking. Um, automation and auto assembly plants, I think one of the lessons of this is there's some technically really hard problems. Uh, and, you know, the, uh, the main auto industry, the Detroit auto industry and, and Toyota learned these things in the 80s and 90s. We see Tesla having to kind of relearn them, that uh, <laughs> assembling things is really hard. Uh, actually, I went to a presentation by uh, the head of GM Engineering who said, you know, the most flexible automation remains us, the human. Um, and so when you have odd things, uh, and so then what, what people ended up doing was kind of workarounds. So there's something, initially for a long time, it was a really hard problem to get the windshield um, exactly seated on, on a car. Uh, so there's video of, at Hamtramck of GM where the robot picks up this windshield and precisely turns, smashes it into the car. Because <laughs> 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 the, uh, you can turn that off. Sorry, I forgilled it. And so what Toyota figured out is, well, there's, what's the automation good at? It's good at lifting the heavy thing. What's the worker good at guiding the last few inches? So they developed this thing called automation assist. Lift it up. Now things are uh, technically feasible enough, you can act, the robots go all the way. But it's, a, again, an idea of, you know, what is the problem that we're solving with automation? That, that I think is a lesson here. Uh, automatic tellers. Uh, some really interesting work by Jim Besson and, and also Shane we're talking about. There's three phases. Um, of adoption of automatic tellers. So there's the initial uh, invention of the automatic teller in 1967, uh, sort of slow adoption and not much change or dislocation. A lot of predictions of incredible job loss, the disappearance of the, the teller occupation. Um, so at first you don't see that. Then there's a middle phase, I think in the 90s, where you actually do see job loss. And then later, there's a third phase where banks figured out there's a lot of things that humans can do. So cross-selling of mortgages and loans and stuff. And so the employment of tellers actually increased. And so I think there's a bunch of lessons here about you know, finding new duties that tasks and occupations are not set. Uh, they, can be, they can evolve. Um, uh, trade expansion with China doesn't sound like technology, but I think it's uh, also an important uh, cautionary tale. And here I think you know, work by uh, David Otter and his many co-authors has really kind of revolutionized our, our understanding of this. Um, so first of all, that uh, the trade impact, impact affected not just workers who directly lost their jobs, but the people in their communities. Um, and so what you can see is service employment. So that he finds no decline in manufacturing wages, but does find decline in service wages uh, in the areas where the, the China shock is the greatest. Um, another th and, and so finds that the median working age employed adult from 1990 to 2000 suffered about a $1,200 per year loss because of this China shock. So even though overall there's probably benefits to consumers, a long transition period with um, 
big losses for most people. Um, and the compensation of these losses, so when I said $1,200, the average compensation was about $80. Uh, and that this accrued not through our official technology assistance agencies, but through the disability system. So there, I think there's a bunch of lessons about kind of how not to do things from this, uh, this is kind of a, a trade shock, but it's a huge shock. Uh, ah, and so we do actually have a positive one, I mean, partly. <laughs> we do. Uh, so in Australian strip mines, um, there's a lot of self-driving trucks, and these have a lot of benefits in sort of taking these dirty and dangerous jobs in the middle of nowhere um, and making them automated. So people can sit in air-conditioned rooms in Sydney or whatever and operate these trucks that are below ground uh, in really hot, dangerous environments. Um, I guess just to be an economist, there's always a downside. Uh, the communities that used to, that used to uh, serve these uh, employees are suffering because there's no employees there. Um, but, but in terms of the potential for automation to dramatically improve uh, outcomes, I think this, this is one we see in that. Um, you see them in these others as well that I have highlighted. Um, so, um, what kind of some general lessons here? So, we're going to create a bunch of new jobs and things that we didn't predict before. Um, the tellers could sell mortgages and, and loans. Uh, and the new technology can be developed either to de skill or to upskill, as we saw in the CNC example. Um, often, these big, these, particularly these big technologies, you know, really do create a lot of wealth. But as we saw, I think, in the Industrial Revolution, uh, you can end up with people absolutely worse off. Um, and uh, spreading benefits can require decades of major institutional change. Um, uh, I think said this. And so a key from this is that policy and implementation really matter, and we're going to have some ideas at the end that, that Eric will talk about. Um, so we have a kind of a framework for thinking about this, and I'm going to sort of belabor this point a little bit because uh, I think it takes us in a somewhat different direction than a lot of the public debate. Um, so we have the adoption of uh, AVs. Uh, the first impact is higher productivity of uh, driving, uh, whether that's in trucks or cars, and transportation costs fall. Um, so there's some good aspects to that. So price falls, we buy more of it. Uh, and we are richer, so we have other things we can buy. Uh, so during the time what we used to spend driving to our commute, we can be listening to podcasts or, or something. Um, taking uh, whatever. Um, and so what this does is it creates new jobs. So buying more transportation, the transportation companies will have new jobs. Um, We'll have uh, in the inputs for automated vehicles, we'll have new jobs. So, one idea of how trucks will run is they would be remotely guided. So, you might have remote truck drivers or uh, sort of like aircraft traffic controllers. Um, and then we also have totally new things, you know, even more yoga instructors or something. <laughs> uh, but, so these are all green because these are good, but then we have this lost jobs. Um, and so I think you know, we have this kind of disconnect in the uh, public debate. I think the uh, general public kind of underestimates this side, the green stuff. Um, economists tend to assume that displaced workers move without cost to new jobs. 
In practice, <laughs> we think there's a number of gaps that highlight this effective adjustment. Um, and so that's what we want to focus on. So we're going to spend a bunch of time uh, estimating the lost jobs and the lost income. Uh, and we're going to argue, particularly, I think the lost job is kind of not a huge number. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we're kind of home free with no, no trouble, because we think there can be a long period of dislocation. And we also don't know who's going to compensate the dislocated when their incomes drop. But also, are these new jobs, what are they going to look like? So if you think about, you know, Amazon's created a bunch of jobs. Some of them are these warehouse workers that are, you know, insanely unsafe and terrible. Uh, I guess now being paid $15 an hour, but for, for effort unit, it's still not, I don't know. <laughs> um, so, so anyway, that, that's why I was spending a long time on this slide. And we're going to talk about some of the gaps that hinder effective adjustment. Uh, they go against this economist assumption of, of smooth uh, uh, income, uh, smooth adjustment. So one is geography. The new jobs may be in different places from the old jobs. Uh, and Eric will present some evidence that this is actually more true than one might think uh, with ADs. Uh, skills. The new skills required may be very different than the old skills. And here again, we think there's a role for policy in that this stuff doesn't fall from the sky, particularly on trucking. There's a number of things, you know, if you sort of think about, so, so suppose we go in the direction of remote trucking. How do we do this? You can imagine doing this in a way that the skills required are, you know, some young computer science graduate. Everything's very abstract. There's little dots on a screen or something. You could imagine another way that takes into account the skill of someone who's actually driven a truck for a long time. So you have a different, easy to understand user interface for somebody who's driven a truck. And then you get all that intuition that that person has that maybe isn't coded yet into the, the software. Um, so these are the kinds of choices that I think we have to make that, that, so that the, the skill mismatch is not given. And, and we can think about from policy how, how that might happen. Um, so worker voice is a, another thing that is really important, I think, not mentioned often enough. Um, that who participates in these discussions and who uh, captures the benefits is really important. Uh, so there's an information issue. So one of the things, so trucking deregulation has meant that uh, trucking is no longer a unionized occupation. It was a really highly unionized occupation. It's now not. So it used to be good jobs. They should, truckers shared in the rents of um, uh, uh, the, the trucking companies that they got from regulation. That's all gone away. Uh, that's that's why I would argue there's a trucking shortage. <laughs> and it's not something of help in the sky. But anyway, the, the extent that Teamsters still exist, and some of those jobs are, they're engaged in some really interesting, productive discussions around how do you uh, take existing drivers. And maybe one of the things that you can do now is platoon trucks. So you have a truck uh, that leads and then a truck that follows that's controlled by the first truck. Uh, maybe you have a driver in that second truck, maybe you don't. But the first driver, and one of the things you get immediately is big fuel economy benefits on the order of 10 to 15 percent. Um, and so you could imagine paying that front driver a whole lot more and then maybe the second job becomes an entry level or something. But anyway, that kind of discussion of what does the job look like, how is the software designed, it's really important for there to be some organization, some uh, voice of the workers, the people currently doing the job. 
to, to ease this transition and also to make it more productive. Second, there's the issue of who appropriates the benefits. Um, uh, second, and then the last, the last issue is uh, investment. And uh, you know, if we think, you know, theoretically there's new jobs that could be created, where's the capital gonna come from to, uh, to create those jobs? Um, if you imagine that jobs are lost in communities or in a time period where there's already a depression or a recession going on, how do you get the capital there? So these are all issues I think that, that we're going to raise and uh, Erica's going to solve. But then you invited me, right? <laughs> so as I said, these are uh, uh, key. Um, let's see, so I'm going to spend, talk a little bit about our method and then Erica's going to take over. And I think what we want to talk about, I mean, a point that Erica makes is we don't think of this as a forecast. We think of this as a simulation. And what I want to do on this slide is kind of talk about where we think we're pretty confident uh, and where we think, you know, a lot of uncertainty. And so we're not, I think, wedded to particular numbers. We, we think this is a reasonable estimate, uh, and we can talk if you want about um, uh, question. But anyway, I guess I should ask, I I've just been talking, I haven't been, any, any questions? So there's a kind of, the first part is about this kind of past innovation. I don't know if there's questions or comments. I guess, please go ahead. Um, is there any reason to believe that the historic, that there's a major difference in this technological adoption versus the historical cases that you brought up? I know it's the question of the hour, but. All yeah, so, uh, I think one thing that comes out of the cases is, yeah, is, as Erica said, they're, they're all different. And there's many possible impacts and many, many more margins of adjustment, I guess, than you might think. So I think, you know, take this bank teller example. It wasn't, you know, the fixed job of a bank teller of handing out cash, you know, that really isn't done so, more, so much anymore. But this, these other tasks were added. So I think that's one lesson. Um, I mean, I guess you know, so, so there's arguments that this time really is different. Uh, you know, so the Brynjolfs and McAfee stuff about, you know, people are going to become horses, and there's just going to be a whole class of people who just cannot be more productive than these computers. And I guess we can't really, you know, we can't rule that out. Um, and I think we can imagine that time, you know, people needing some retraining. And so if you think about the Industrial Revolution, there were people who were illiterate. And it was hard for them to benefit. Uh, and so then we created schools, and that took decades. So if we could speed that. I don't know, do you, do you want to weigh in on that? I would say that um, I'm, it's worth it to think about both the question in both ways. Uh, let's, let's, let's definitely take the past as far as it can, and what can it teach us? And then, but it's obviously important to understand the, the unique features of this transition too. Most of what we're doing here is based on what we know about cars and what we're expecting to happen to them in the future, uh, using the lessons of the past. But one of the reasons we call it a simulation is because we know that they're going to be, first of all, we can't know in advance everything that's going to happen, uh, but but there, there, there probably are some unique features that aren't in here. So, no and yes. <laughs> <laughs>
my question was more on you know second policy angle. One policy angle that I see here is retraining the workers and making sure the transition is not managed as during the China shock. Another angle is directing technology. And so I was wondering whether in your research do you find that we are looking at some misallocation of resources across different types of technologies and it would be worthwhile getting the word out that no, you'd better focus your attention, you know, in these new jobs, for example, or I mean, what, what's yeah. your... Yeah. So actually, uh, let, me get, let me get to that. I'm going to address that a little bit going forward. But one other element that Sue has always emphasized in this is that uh, when we say policy matters, it's, it's much more than employment policy. So uh, are we going to have congestion pricing? Huge determinant of outcomes, right? Are, uh, so are we going to get more and more congestion in the cities, or are we going to have congestion pricing so that we continue to have a, a viable public transportation system, right, for example? Um, and. Uh, there are many other kinds of policies that are going to affect the outcome. It's technology is moving this along, but we as as a country are going to have to decide how we steer it. But, but I guess I, I do think that our institutions are not set up well for this. So mm -hmm. so actually in the Obama administration, I was the chief economist of the Commerce, and so doing a lot of stuff in training around manufacturing. And so one of the things that happens is you sort of think about uh, technology development and you involve companies and it's their chief technology officer, the technology people. And they design this technology and then it sort of falls from the sky onto the poor low status HR people and, and the worker. And, and there isn't really an opportunity to bring in this, and so that's why I think the stuff that the Teamsters are doing is so important. You know, let's learn about, and this is you know, also criticism I think of the union movement, I mean partly it's weak, but they don't have enough people who uh, can really participate in these discussions. You have to know something about the technology and something about the skills of your current workforce. And, and so I think we could do a much better job um, on thinking about and finding ways, and maybe, you know, maybe it's not the traditional union movement, but some ways of bringing in uh, HR concerns, worker concerns, and worker current skills uh, to do that. So, so actually, after this, I'm going to uh, next week. I'm going to Germany, and, and I, there they have a somewhat different structure. That at least in principle, it's not obvious to me that they're doing it. But, but anyway, that'll be a. So it's really interesting to point out the technology development. Even in some sense, technology how sort of driverless car technology evolves into an endogenous process, right? So you can imagine like two parts in the extreme. One part is that like suppose like we can just ignore workers and displacement for a moment and how technology may evolve in that direction. And the other extreme is that like suppose Teamster or other worker unions have a huge dropping power in the in the process and there's a kind of compromised version of technological advancement or what kind of uh, in what way driverless powers are developed. So how shall we think about those two parts in terms of the negotiation between workers and concerns about displacement versus the, in what form driverless cars? So I guess I would, what I would say is there's a third path, which is not necessarily slowing the technology, it's redesigning it. Uh, so, so I guess this example of, you know, what is the console that drives the remote truck look like? Is it something that a computer scientist designed that you have to have a couple years of computer science training and coding to understand? 
Or is it something that's got you know, pictures of little trucks and allows the truck driver to bring in their years of intuition to manage? So, so that would be sort of one kind of example. Um, another kind of example that's, um, yeah, so, so I was just actually at, at Komatsu and they make uh, excavators. So they're very interested in figuring out, could you remotely operate an excavator? Uh, you know, so you could have people, uh, there's a bunch of advantages about why you want to do this. So one of the things they're experimenting with is allowing the worker to program their own kind of hotkey. So uh, apparently in video games, uh, what people do, there's a bunch of motions that you want to, you know, raise up your gun and kill somebody. So you can remote, you make that, you know, raising up and shooting into one, you know, kind of a macro. So you can imagine do, allowing workers to do that in digging. You, you raise the shovel and you tilt it in a certain way. You let the worker program that stuff, you're going to get all kinds of different ideas that you would never have thought of sitting there on your desk. So I think, I think there's this third path of actually altering the technology. And so it's not just about speed, it's also about what. Um, and, but, but, I think, but I think we're going to talk about this more later, so sorry. Uh, okay. So, so this is our input. So we have four scenarios that come from SAFE. These uh, you can pick apart if people have. Um, there's occupations that are likely to be affected by AV adoption, and they're going to draw on actually my, my old staff at Commerce did this great report. Uh, there's a percent reduction in employment by occupation. So you can imagine, you know, we think that uh, uh, autonomous driving, fully autonomous driving is diffused by X percent. What does that mean for trucking? So we're going to have some uh, uh, percentages there that again we got from SAFE but we think are defensible. Um, now we get into, uh, I think, things that we're basically extrapolating from the recent past and I think we, I feel, uh, Erica helped collect or was in charge of collecting this data so I feel total confidence in it. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, so we have, you know, what are the current employment and wages and demographics by occupation? Uh, we have occupational exit rates. Uh, and so this is important if you think that you know, a, a industry is high turnover and somebody loses a job because of AVs, well, maybe they would have quit anyway quickly. And we're going to take that into account. Um, there are some issues about how quickly do people find new jobs. And so we're going to look again at the past uh, using the... Uh, the BLS Displaced Worker Survey. Uh, we have how long are people likely to continue working? If, again, if somebody is displaced by an AB, they were gonna retire the next year anyway. Maybe we're less concerned. Uh, and then how much, when they are displaced, how much earnings do they lose? And here we're gonna draw some work uh, by Tilda Hopter and uh, Jim Davis. Um, so what are our key assumptions? Where, where, <laughs> where do you, you wanna be uncertain? So one is we're going to assume uh, no multiplier effects. Uh, and this is going to reduce the size of our estimates, uh, particularly in a, you know, if, if the AV adoption occurs in a uh, uh, recession time. A key one is we're going to assume no changes in land use. And this could go either way. So one issue is that uh, people, if you have autonomous cars, commuting is much less of a chore. There's some models that say the congestion goes down because uh, you can have better sharing, you can have vehicles closer together. To the extent that's true, you get a greater commuting area, more area you can look for a job, particularly in rural areas, that could be great. On the other hand, and I guess this is my fear, you get up with greater congestion. Everybody thinks, well, it's costless to me to sit in traffic because I'm just doing email and watching meetings, watching movies. 
So I'm just going to go everywhere, and I'm going to also set my uh, uh, driver's car to go pick up packages. So they did actually an experiment where they gave people um, a free chauffeur just to see what happened and found a 78% increase in vehicle miles traveled, and then most of those were without an occupant. You know, go pick up the kid. Oh, I forgot the milk at the grocery store, go get it. So you could imagine this. You could also imagine- It was free, but still. But anyway, uh, there's a guy, uh, David Keith at MIT, has some really interesting modeling about the potential collapse of tra transit systems. It's a middle class, you know, finds it easier, you know, in places like Boston, uh, to, to just commute in the, uh, an AV, then uh, who funds the bus systems? Uh, and so you could end up with more congestion, more dislocation. So I think these, these issues are really, really, really important, and that climate change impacts are huge. So are you gonna, does that mean, I'm going to try to read, understand what you're about to tell us, but uh, um, does that mean you're going to avoid talking about changes in warehousing, for example? Because once, once trucks can move it, 2 a.m., for sure you're going to get different warehousing kinds of arrangements. That's right. So we, we, don't, we do not have those sort of second-order effects in here. That's right. Because it's, it's too too much. I mean, I'm just thinking yeah. the way firms... No, no, I think that's really interesting. I mean, when you I think about a value chain, how most value chains work inside firms. I mean, that, you know, there's all kinds of inventory management and where right. you store stuff in an in-between moment. But, and there's a huge amount of effort being put into right. moving uh, with and without traffic. I mean, it's your traffic point that yeah. makes me think about this. L having lived in Chicago, you know, all the all the cross-country trucks tried to avoid the traffic moments in Chicago so that they would plan around that to, to go through those highways at particular times a day to avoid those things. And it had, you know, you could you could move at four in the morning. It has huge consequences. Right. So you could you could get closer to that by doing a whole input output analysis, some of which you know would be the kind of multiplier effects that we talked about. And and you're they are not in here yet. They, the, tra the transportation hubs, particularly in the U.S., will well, change. Well, they interact super importantly yeah. with policy because you yeah. could imagine that yeah. the Chicago okay. problem gets worse. Or you could imagine it goes away. Yeah, right. So we don't imagine it goes away. I mean, yeah. there's just tons of warehouses on Highway 80 just south of the city, for example. It's just it's it's a sort of vast wasteland on some level too. But uh, um, and that's all about this, where people leave stuff off and then pick them up and so on. I mean, we're only going through 2050, so some part of this is that those things they they take a while to really trickle yeah, through. Yeah, they do. Okay. Right. Thanks. And then the last assumption is that we're assuming that the reemployment experience, the exits, and the earnings losses are similar to those of recently displaced workers. Um, and obviously, this could change if we get you know better policy, or um, we have another deep recession, uh, or it's full employment forever. All these things could change. Uh, and now, the scenarios. <laughs> well, actually, maybe, maybe we should just set, just sort of stop and just sort of see. This is kind of the overview of what we're going to do. No, this is the overview of what we're going to yeah. do. I don't know if there are questions, or you want to go through first. You know what? I'm, I'm going to take them through what we're doing, although I'm happy to answer questions. But the reason I'm going to do that is is to make sure we have time for questions That's at great. the end. Okay, yeah. great. So, uh, so do interrupt. I'm not. <laughs> I don't want to cut that off, but. Uh, but we told you generally what we're doing now. Let me take you through what we did. So I hope any questions uh, will, yeah, you'll, you'll find the right place to, to ask your questions. Okay. So, all right. Oops. Wrong direction. Oh, no, no. 
there we go. Okay, so the scenarios. We have two car scenarios, two truck scenarios, and they really anchor all of our estimates. So these are the two car scenarios, and they differ primarily by who's going to own these AVs. Are we going to stay with personal ownership, or are we going to go to fleets? So the technology differences aren't too extreme except for the assumption that fleet cars are much more likely to be totally electric. Right? And because uh, totally electric cars are more expensive and, um, and, uh, and they will be even more highly automated, so it will make sense for, for a fleet owner to have a totally electric car. Okay, so the first part up until early 2030s is more or less the same. The green in both of these is the fleet ownership and the gold are personally owned AVs. The vertical axis is vehicle miles traveled. Okay, so it's not, this is not about the number of vehicles because the, the assumption is that the actual number of vehicles is higher per vehicle mile traveled for personally owned vehicles than for fleet. And uh, you see a, a kind of a more rapid adoption, though, on shared or fleet autonomous vehicles with the idea that this is an infusion of capital by investors. And so the adoption happens a little bit faster. But it's really pretty similar. The main thing, the main difference is whether we're talking about fleet ownership or, um, or individual ownership. Yes? So you're showing percentages, but is the level of total vehicles out there going to be the same in these scenarios? Because presumably if you have fleets, you might need fewer, fewer vehicles. vehicles. That's right. So you'll probably have fewer vehicles in the fleet world. But we're just doing it by, uh, here, is just by the, the vehicle miles traveled. Because we're, um, when we go to the employment effects, I don't think that matters so much. And you hold those constants That's because right. of the SMS. That's right. And one thing to, uh, uh, to clarify is we don't do anything very fancy uh, with, uh, with our occupations as they go from here to there we, uh, about uh, saying, well, uh, the proportion of people displaced being, um, is uh, somehow different per increase in vehicle miles traveled here versus over there. We're just going to we're just going to take that as a, just a linear function. Right? And, and one so, other thing is, even yeah. if there are fewer cars on the road at a point in time, they're going to wear out faster. So in terms of the total number of cars produced, it probably doesn't change. And, and, uh, but I was mostly thinking about sort of the marginal cost of usage when you have a fleet, because the marginal cost is more salient, probably usage is going to decline. Uh. Or maybe go up. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, even uh, personally owned ones might be loaned out to for fleet use at some time. So there, there are a lot of possibilities. But you know, this is the taint, the the uh, the general idea that that we're getting you know inflection point in the 30s. This is where the, in both of these where the adoption is relatively rapid, and then by 2050 we're assuming that we're all autonomous vehicles. Now this is partly because cars depreciate faster than trucks. So when we get to trucks, we're gonna see, uh, it's gonna look a little bit different. And in trucks, the, here we're talking about vehicles, fleet penetration, what proportion are AV, all right? 
And the big difference between our two truck scenarios is really just speed of adoption. And we're looking at three phases. One, um, phase one is where we have uh, a lot of assistive technology, driver-assistive technology, and we have platooning. Platooning is where the, car, the truck in front controls the speed of the truck right behind it, so you get uh, a, a lot of fuel savings and also some probably driver fatigue uh, reduction as well. And then, so the inflection point for this is in uh, 2020. Uh, if we're looking at this, is the, um, this is the fast adoption. Uh, this is the slower adoption. Then we go into level four, where you can have a truck with no driver for stretches. This really starts to pick up in 2031 in the, in the slow adoption, um, and a little bit faster in uh, the fast adoption. But the big difference between these two is how rapidly full autonomy comes in. In the slow adoption, really it's 2045, right near the end of our um, of the period we're looking at uh, for slow adoption. For fast adoption, you get you know almost 90 percent by the end. Okay. So now this doesn't mean that all truck driver jobs go away at that point. It's just that we converge to the, to the number of jobs that we think would be eliminated by the technologies at that point. And again, we apply these linearly. All right. So what is this? Um, well, let's, let's start thinking about occupations. And here I want to point out that a really lot of jobs involve driving. So, 30% of American workers are in jobs that require some driving. They not drive all the time. We may not think of them as drivers. But, I know certainly like truck delivery service drivers drive. You know, uh, those we think of as driving. But police patrol officers, we don't think of them as drivers, but they're required to drive. Now, we don't. Um, so driving is a very important part of a lot of occupations. It's going to change people's responsibilities in a lot of jobs. Uh, one group that, that we focus a lot on, uh, let's see, where are these guys? The home health aides, right? We see here, you know, over 50% of home health aides have to drive for their job. They drive their patients around, they have to get to their patients. So uh, this, is, this is going to be an important part of, uh, of the labor market going forward as maybe more of their time is opened up for other productivity. Maybe people with disabilities can take those jobs. It's going to change a lot of things. What we've done is from, from information like this and our understanding of responsibilities, we've focused on the ones that where AV is likely to eliminate jobs. And what about like Uber drivers? Yeah, so Uber drivers are uh, are in here. Taxi, Taxi drivers. drivers and chauffeurs. Okay. All right. Okay. So this. So now we're focusing on uh, here. This group are the primary driver jobs. So these are where the real the real job is driving. All right. And we have them ordered by employment in those jobs. The next slide has it bigger. Uh, well, it's not the, the next okay. slide, yeah. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to talk about them more carefully. 
But so this is the um, this is their employment level. This is then for each one of them the share of jobs eliminated under full implementation of the scenarios that we talked about. All right, and, and each of the four scenarios. I'm going to go through. I'm going to go through the truck drivers uh, in gory detail in a minute. <laughs> give you an idea of what we're looking at. And then this is just multiplying those percentages by the number of jobs to see how many we're talking about being eliminated. Um, so you can see uh, trucking fast, trucking slow. We've got fewer jobs eliminated. Car fleet, car personal, similar, but fewer jobs eliminated when you have fleet, um, when you have fleet jobs. Uh, and just, just to be yeah. clear, so this is not, so the uh, imagining delivery from autonomous vehicles uh, mm -hmm. to your home, that's actually not here. Well, so it's, it's, sort, it's sort of here. The light trucker delivery service. It's the light trucker. Okay, yeah, yeah, uh, yes, because right. that's been in a lot of future scenarios. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Okay. right. And buses, ambulance drivers, you, know, you can see that we're talking about maybe fewer jobs for some of these things than you might imagine. <laughs> So I just want to see if I understand sort of what's yeah. implicit between the last slide and this slide. So yeah. is what you're doing is you're dividing up and saying, okay, there are lots of jobs that involve some driving, like your lawyers up there, but you actually think that if self-driving cars stayed over there, we're not really going to change the number of lawyers, you're not going to worry about that. Right. So you're going to sort of segment the group that does do driving into mm -hmm. the ones that where like actually they might lose their job if, if mm -hmm. it becomes and that's your and all the analysis is going to flow from that. Base yes. Mm -hmm. We do have some other on-the-job driver occupations, uh, and we think that we might have, we might have uh, uh, security guards might be a little more efficient if they don't have to drive, you know, right? Uh, and also police sheriffs, uh, because because now people are not driving, we may need fewer people on the road policing driving. <laughs> that's the part of answering my question because I think about bus drivers who they have to deal with uh, people who are disabled by getting on. Um, what do you call it, wheelchair? Yes. Or uh, school, K-12, school bus drivers, dispute resolution? Absolutely. I mean, that's a yeah. polite way of saying yeah. bullying yeah. and fighting. So, so I mean, there, that's there, reality. There are school bus attendants, and they're in a different occupation. Oh. But certainly for you only have one driver now uh -huh. that performs that function also, uh -huh. you would think you're, you're still going to need that. Okay. Right. Okay. okay, I'm just yeah. wondering. And that's why none of these are one. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, and then here's a whole bunch of other on the drive. Uh, none of them huge, but mechanics are important because a very high proportion of mechanics work is fixing uh, cars after crashes, and we think we're assuming fewer crashes. Is, is part of the modeling and the analysis how autonomous vehicles will also change the type of fuel for the cars and the fact that they will accelerate the we didn't go too far into that, but, but we do believe that cars are more likely to be electric um, the further we go into AV. Because if you have to have all that electrical system to run the AV, then it, it, um, it's, it's likely that we will, that, that pushes us towards more electric cars. I think that might be, it might be worth tuning through this because it will fundamentally affect the economics of the car. One thing that you mentioned before was that electric vehicles are more expensive, yes. but they are actually more cost competitive if you have higher 
higher usage. What this will do is will increase usage. And actually, the cost carried for electric cars will come down faster if you have more autonomous vehicles. And then that might have significant implications when you're thinking about employment, when you're thinking about gas stations, for example. There are more than 100,000 of them. And so I don't know if you if that is part of the analysis. Or not. So it, it's not it's not a large part, but, but we're, one of the things that that we are um, th that we want to be doing is presenting people with a framework that they can use to to think about those particular issues. So by making all this available and transparent, you can go through, change all of these numbers, and see how different your estimate might be. Okay. So let's focus but on... Just, I mean, we do have, part of the reason that the maintenance goes down so much mm -hmm. is, is the idea that EVs and fleets will require less maintenance. And that's part of also the difference between the fleet scenario and the passenger scenario. So, so I think we could go further, but we haven't, we've done some. Yeah. And it'd be great to talk more. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we consulted with a few estimates, to, uh, with a few experts to get the percentages, but there's a big standard error about around any of those, and that's part of why we're calling this, again, a simulation. We try to put reasonable numbers in there for everything, um, but we invite other people to put in some other reasonable numbers and see how that's going So the major occupations that we're talking about are the ones that I pointed out before, the biggest uh, occupations with, um, with drive, uh, that, that focus on driving. And you can see is that we're not assuming that all of the heavy truck driver jobs go away. This is the largest occupation. We're talking about 1.5 million jobs. And even under full implementation, uh, you're talking about si only 65% of them are going away. And folks uh, are slow. Then by 2050, we only, uh, we only have 60% of them going away. Uh, and, uh, and so this kind of takes you through this, um, you know, th these are all the percentages of jobs that we think are going to be eliminated. And these match up, we think, reasonably well with other estimates that have been made of the number of jobs eliminated. There's some data differences between the two and some assumption differences uh, between the two. When you adjust for those, they look more similar than, uh, than you might think, yeah. Have you considered the effects of not, like I think of um, waitresses and diner owners on highways that count on regular repeat customers mm -hmm. and now they're not feeding anybody, so yes. they're going to lose jobs as well. So, so those are the, the multiplier effects yes. that are not in here. Okay. That okay. are not in here. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, anyone, um, uh, who's faster, uh, sorry, uh, Walmart who owns its own fleet or uh, Third party, uh, you know, the third party firms who, who do, do you have any sort of sense yeah. for that? So, our analysis is at the occupational level rather than at the industry, at the industry ownership yeah. level. So, we, we don't think about who's going to be there fastest. Yeah. But, yeah. but I think that's a, a, I, I think that's a good question. My guess is that, that you're going, that, that the, um, uh, that the firms that employ, the trucks yeah, are yeah. probably going to be either first movers or last movers. They're not going to be so much in the middle. <laughs> That's my guess. But yeah. you know. so anything's possible. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah.
right. So now, so then that table that I showed you, add them all up. And we can add them all up in two ways. One, we can look at the scenario separately, and the other is that we can combine the, the, the two trucking and the two car, car scenarios um, uh, differently. So here's trucking fast, trucking slow, cars fleet, cars personal, and this is fast plus cars fleet all the way down to trucking slow and cars personal. This is our count of the number of jobs that will disappear, and we divide the, um, the total number of jobs that are disappeared, uh, that will disappear into two parts. Um, those, um, this gives you the total number of jobs that disappear, and we uh, we, then we take off the top of that the number of jobs that in the year of displacement, the worker would have left that, that occupation anyway, right? whether it's retirements or because it's a high turnover occupation, Right. And so then we get down to the number of workers that we think are actually going to get that pink slip. Right. Yeah. So in this scenario, I mean, how much would this change if you were sort of forward looking? So you, you, you're in this trucking company, you say, like, I historically have been hiring, you know, 20,000 people a year. Now I'm not going to hire those 20,000 people. Like, how much more of that bar can you avoid? Like rather than kicking people out, but just by not hiring. Uh, you probably can do. You can probably make. Uh, a, a, you, know, a, 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 you can probably reduce this. That's exactly the kind of thing that we talk about. What really affects a lot of the impacts are going to be policy and employer decisions, and that would be an employer decision that could be made. Our employers could also decide we're going to retrain these workers for something else within our company, and then they wouldn't be displaced at all. So it's both using attrition and retraining that could, that could affect this. This is assuming that, that we're not seeing any of that. OK, so we've got a maximum of uh, about 2.3 million displaced over uh, between now and 2050, <coughs> down to a minimum of about 1.3 million displaced. So that's that's those are the total numbers we're talking about, and this is where they come from. Okay. Um, now, so we have these total number of workers displaced. We say, well, what happens to a worker after they're displaced? The BLS has the um, has a survey of displaced workers that they do every other year, and they ask them about previous experience. Um, or they, they say, have you been displaced within the past three years, and what happened to you after that displacement? So using that information, we build, um, we, we build a model that says, okay, you were employed the year before displacement, in the year of displacement, on average, you were, you were displaced halfway through the year. So you worked halfway through the year. So, um, and then there's some probability that you got a new job. So green is employed, yellow is out of the labor force, and red is unemployed. Okay? So uh, the probability you're, you're working is fairly high because half the year you were working anyway. Some part you're unemployed, and some of you left the labor force, right? 
and then we go six years out. We have we ha uh, this 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 part is based on the displaced worker survey. From these year on, we just linearly connected down to about to about six years. Yeah. So um, can you walk us through a little bit uh, about the assumptions you make in the sense that I know you take, probably take the number from the displacement. That's right. Uh, workers survey. Like, give us a little bit more details about like the either the nature of this time is different, the nature of the display, displacement for workers this time, mm -hmm. and whether the statistic you take out of the displaced workers survey is uh, applicable or not, or in what way it's sort of biased or something. Yeah, so this is based on the last three displaced worker surveys, so 2012, 2014, 2016, so that we have a big enough sample. It's adjusted for the demographics um, and sex. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, and then beyond that, not too much. I mean, you know, that, that's basically it. So it's, it's uh, I wouldn't say it's, it's finely tuned, but it's based on what we have. Yeah. But to Hong's point, yeah. uh, wouldn't you think that these bias the unemployment rate downward in a sense that, you know, like a software developer who loses their job can find another software development job. A truck driver who loses their job might not be able to find a truck driving job. These are averages. You are absolutely right. I d uh, did not adjust it by okay. occupation because I really don't have the sample yeah, to do sure. that. Yeah. So could be higher, could be lower. Uh, rural uh, rural uh, versus uh, versus urban would make a difference. A lot, you know, there are a lot of differences. Yeah. You didn't do it by sector. It might just be uh, by individual job. You might be interested to do it by sector, just by like sectors that are declining, mm -hmm. right? Because like it's, it feels like the problem here is going to be not is that you can't get another job using the main skill that you already have. So there's certainly room for doing that or even just adjusting them, even if you don't have a specific estimate saying, say, what if this number's half, you know, larger or smaller, you know, doing some sensitivity tests like that. And we didn't do a lot, but, but that, that would be easy to do. Um, do these data tell us anything about whether it's, say, harder to find a job again if you were a trucker and were a person of color, for example? Like, does it break it down in terms of, you know, for this group, maybe it's more difficult to find a different job, that yeah. kind of thing? So, um, some of that, but not a lot, again, because of the sample size. So, so but I'll show you a little bit of that. Uh, one, one broader question, because like this is one transformation that is going to unfold over the next couple of decades. At around the same time, we're going to have a lot of other types of transformations that might actually <laughs> deal with similar kinds of jobs. Like there's three million plus cash registers out there, for example, <laughs> cashiers. Uh, I'm assuming their jobs will probably not be around by 2030 or so, uh, or at least for a lot of them. And so. I'm, Absolutely it's not. not a scope, but but it, it's interesting question about this is how would all these things necessarily be be connected to each other? I don't know if, if you have links to people that are sort of trying to estimate the same thing in other industries, but it might be interesting to kind of come up with something like that. Well, I mean, these numbers are taking place in our current policy <coughs> environment and in our current technical change environment. So there are jobs being eliminated in lots of industries during this time, and that's part of why this isn't all green, right? People do not flow immediately into new jobs, you see. That there's a pretty high proportion of unemployment. Now, we don't 
uh, one thing that we do that we're doing is saying this is the path to back down to a person having a normal probability of being unemployed, right? We don't assume that they have to get to no unemployment because we know that everybody has some probability of being unemployed. So this is the additional unemployment because of layoff. All right, let me push ahead a little bit more. Um, so then you can take that and basically that, those red numbers and add them to the stock of unemployed uh, by each year, add up the number of extra unemployment we're generating from those layoffs by each scenario. And I'm showing you a comparison between two combinations of scenario. The low one is trucking slow plus cars personally owned. And the high one is trucking fast plus fleet cars. And each one of them is, well, what is what is the addition to the national unemployment rate from those layoffs? And uh, so this is translating the scenarios that we saw from pushing them through the occupations and through the probability of being in the, in the three states to get them to unemployment rates. Now, what you can see is that the, max, the maximum increases in the unemployment rate happen at slightly different times, and the high, obviously the, the high one is trucking fast and cars fleet, and that gets an increase of, uh, of 1,300 of a percentage point to the unemployment rate. The lower ones give you 600 of a percentage point increase to the unemployment rate. Is this big or small? This is not recession sized, but it you know, a tenth of a percentage point is a number that the ELS reports, as and that's about statistical significance for for the uh, for the national unemployment rate. And there's the time: starts slow, not a big effect, ramps up, peaking in the mid late 2040s. So, um, so consequential, right? But manageable. Is what we're okay. Pushing a little bit ahead. Um, okay. What about workers not in the labor force? This breaks the various scenarios out again. The um, you know, we get up to about a tenth of a percentage point decline in labor force participation from people leaving the labor force early because of uh, displacement. That's on the max. About half of that, if um, if we take the uh, trucking slow and the cars personal. Um, lifetime earnings losses. This is average loss per displaced worker. This is total losses by all of the displaced workers. Okay. Uh, dark line in each case is the average of all years. The two uh, patterned lines differentiate between recession years and expansion years. So it makes a huge difference to your losses whether you lose your job during a recession or during an expansion. Truckers, either fast or slow, are going to lose about $80,000 in lifetime earnings as a result of a displacement. 
car drivers, it matters whether you're talking fleet or personal, but it's again in that range, around $80,000. Okay. The total losses, now multiply this by how many people we're talking about, will go from about, uh, about what this is, about $130 uh, billion. Um, but then you have to add a car scenario. So I think we end up with about maximum of about $180 billion in losses to the workers displaced. Is it fair to say that this estimate is uh, very sensitive to the assumptions that are made in the years that it takes to go back to the workforce? So if you go back to Marco's point about now, what is going to be the interaction with other technology developments? And we assume that it might be harder for people, so it might take like 10 years. Mm -hmm. That number will be a multiplier. Is that fair? Or? Yeah, yeah. Although, I mean, the actual way we did it, oh, oh, there, there were two different sources of information. So we just took the number of people that were displaced, and we, uh, and, and, uh, we took a, um, this estimate from Steve Davis until Von Wachter on the size of the income losses from displacement. So the, um, the, it's, we're not using the displaced workers survey results <coughs> directly. So, but, but yes, if, if these occupations are somehow, um, if, if each of these workers loses more, and, and there's reason to think that some of these truckers, even during an expansion, might be closer to the recession years because they live in depressed areas, depressed rural areas. Right? So even, so they may be closer to, uh, to the recession losses. All right, so consequential yet manageable. Here the number of workers displaced. This is similar to the to the, the loss of U.S. manufacturing jobs to the China trade shock, spread out a few more years, but it's similar. Um, so the sizes that we talked about, the wealth losses are in this 200 to 300 billion dollar range, that's <coughs> adding them up across workers. Losses per worker depends on recession, non-recession, but obviously worse than recession. The timing starts slowly, it maxes out in the mid-2040s. So that's interesting. You're going to do geography? Yeah. Okay. So, read you on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. So, this is a crude cut, but uh, I mean, the losses are largest in, in the trucking area. I'm going to focus mostly on those. You see that the big losses are in the south, a lot of big trucking firms in the south. Yep. All right. Uh, lowest northeast and midwest. So, that, uh, so you see a big impact largely on the south. You'll, you'll forgive me for saying I'd much yeah. prefer a voting map uh, <laughs> uh, 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 for, for this particular. That's a great idea. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. The, two, um, the 2016 uh, presidential vote in particular. Uh, another way to, to, to think about regional impacts is where are these occupations particularly salient? where you have a particularly high concentration of people in those occupations compared to national averages. So um, these are the state location quotients for primary driving occupations. A location quotient is the state proportion
proportion of workers in an occupation divided by the national proportion of workers in that occupation. So one means that you have the same percentage as the country as a whole. Two means you have twice as much. 0.5 means you've got half as much. And the variance of location quotients gives you an idea for each of these occupations how, how evenly distributed are those occupations versus, uh, uh, versus being quite different from one region to the next. So heavy tractor trailer truck drivers have uh, a standard deviation of location quotients of about 0.5. That is higher than light truck deliveries, not surprising, all right? Uh, a little bit higher than bus drivers, much higher than uh, driver sales workers. Taxi chauffeur drivers is twice as high. Right? They are actually located in urban areas. That's an urban job. Mm -hmm. uh, Bus drivers about the same, ambulance drivers, very interesting. This is you know, three times as high, but that's probably because of regulatory differences. So I wouldn't focus too much on that. Uh, that probably what uh, an ambulance driver is allowed to do might mean that you classify them into different occupations in different places. Okay, so here's total employment. And then, um, then we say, well, which are, the, uh, which are all of the states that have a location quotient that's about, uh, that's uh, um, over 1.5, okay? So heavy tractor trailer trucks, we see North Dakota, Arkansas, Nebraska, Iowa, Wyoming, Mississippi, Tennessee, South Dakota. For, for taxi drivers and chauffeurs, Nevada, this is, Las Vegas and Minneapolis centers, right? <laughs> <laughs> Vermont, Hawaii. So tourism, places where tourism is very important. Mm -hmm. right? and, and so you, you can see where these impacts are going to be high. For the light truck or delivery, none of them. This is very, these jobs are really quite evenly distributed over the country. So it makes a difference where, where which ones you're talking about. You've, and these are the ones, I, frankly, that we would worry about the most. There are a lot of people in those jobs. They're located in states where jobs are not that plentiful. And so there are many of them that, uh, that are probably going to have a hard time. OK. So then what about the comparison between old and new jobs? Yeah. Just a quick clarification question on that. So when you think about the regional variation in the jobs, how concentrated are the industries? It seems like for most of them, like the decision about rollout of when they're going to have babies would be made kind of at a local level and also like sort of fragment, like it seems like mostly fragmented <coughs> industries. Now, but I'm less sure about like heavy, uh, like the tractor trailer, truck drivers. Are those mostly kind of like a handful of large companies are deciding most of these jobs or are those pretty fragmented industries where you'd expect to see very different decisions, both kind of, you know, within an area and across areas? There are a lot of very small trucking companies, so I think it'll be fragmented. But then, then there's the other end, right? You've got the Hunt, <laughs> J.B. Hunt, and some of the others. And so you could also imagine that this is a way they can grab market share, and so yeah. that in fact, you know, the yeah. A.B. truck, you know, there's so you drive out the people they can't figure out the new technology or something. So yeah, everything's up to don't have access to the capital to buy these new trucks. Mm -hmm. So all these owner operators. Right, uh, I'm going to have a hard time buying the new technology. 
Okay, so this is more of a heuristic analysis, but we just want to compare some of the characteristics of the jobs that we've talked about going away with the new jobs that are going to be created in those three bucket areas that Sue talked about. So first, here, here are the biggest uh, chunk of jobs that are disappearing, the heavy and light tractor trailer truck drivers, the light truck, and the bus drivers. So these are the jobs with the biggest numbers of, uh, of lost jobs. And typical wages, typical education, so we're talking about high school or for the heavy truck post-secondary non-degree awards, so some kind of a training uh, certification. Uh, for them uh, and the states with a, and then he, then he, again these are the states with the highest occupational concentration we saw that, that's from the table that we just saw right? but this is just giving us the first uh, the first five of those states so let's say transportation just expands because it's uh, because it's uh, now cheaper well what occupations are most likely to expand within that well aids for older, young, or disabled riders. These are personal care aids who help with transportation. I think that that's likely to expand. They, on average, earn less. They have similar education levels. They do not look like they, by and large, are located in many of the same states where the jobs are lost. Um, how, what about, we also thought expediters, roadway, automotive repair mechanics, if you don't have a a driver in the car doing some of that work, then you're going to have to have somebody go and fix the thing, right? These are actually paid pretty well. They're very similar to the tractor-trailer drivers, maybe more similar locations right now. So that's a that, you know that's kind of a positive story. Package deliverers look kind of like the light truck or delivery service um, drivers. So again, yeah, that's a possibility. When we get to the other two, the, the AV-related jobs and the all-sectors job creation, here we're talking about higher jobs, higher-skilled jobs being created associated with AV. This again, these we got from talking to our experts, um, traffic engineers, traffic technicians, computer programmers, network and computer systems administrators, are the kinds of jobs that it's most easy to see might be created. They tend to be high, more highly paid, requiring more education, and uh, not terribly concentrated. Some example: uh, the traffic technicians right now are are very highly um, uh, tend to be uh, very highly concentrated, but uh, maybe they maybe they become less concentrated, more evenly distributed in the future. The all sectors job creation, these are the top uh, growing jobs in the U.S. today, so we plunk them in, what do they look like? Personal care aides, combined food prep, and registered nurses, so the low end of the income distribution is, and, and then at the, at the higher end. And the education components uh, uh, reflect that, and all of them are fairly uh, evenly distributed. Uh, geographically. So, oh, okay, yeah. so another question, uh, gender? Uh, yeah, uh, gender. So, um, yeah, I could have put that in. I did. Yeah. But, um, is it but primarily uh, male that we're talking um, about this place? Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, certainly, yes. Um, oh, I, yeah, I 
This thing has to be adequately funded for inclusive eligibility. The way to be frugal is by making sure that the dollars spent are spent wisely rather than by trying to limit eligibility. So too often in our policy world, frugality comes through, oh, I've got to make sure not too many people uh, could apply for this. It seems to me that, it seems to us that the, uh, the important thing is to make sure that the decisions made are really evidence-based, and that's the way to be frugal. And we know that autonomous vehicles are not the only reason people are displaced. There are other technological changes, there are changes due to trade, there are changes just due to competitive forces. It's, there's no logic to restricting any program to just people displaced by AB. Plus, we do not know which are the people who are going to be displaced from AB in advance. So we waste a lot of energy determining eligibility, trying to circumscribe it that could be put into the programs themselves. Yeah, that makes sense. And if you want to keep people from fearing technological change, then they have to be certain that this program will be there and available for them. It has to be multi-pronged. We talked about the four different barriers to quick adjustment. This means that there is no silver bullet. Workers' needs are different. We need to address issues of worker voice, training, some place-based issues for the depressed areas, income support for people who are near retirement in particular, search and placement health. And this whole thing should be innovative and evidence-based. This means that you need to have a lot of program experiments and evaluations continually. You need to have really high, relevant and high quality official statistics to, with a lot of geographic detail to base those decisions on. Right. And you have to stop underfunding statistical agencies. I was um, commissioner of the BLS for four years, so I can tell you how underfunded <laughs> statistical agencies are. Administrative data is key to all of this in order to do this right. We have a lot of research on these programs and stakeholder input because that's the most forward-looking part of the information that you've got and you need to incorporate that. So, mitigation investment, it's advisable to avoid uh, consequential harm to workers and communities. It will promote further information by reducing resistance to change, and it will mean that we take advantage of workers' skills and insights rather than just discarding them. It's doable. We've got 10 to 20 years before the costs mount. We've got many proven policy options out there that have been tested already, and more that we should test. Now, the annual AV benefits, which we do not estimate in our, um, in our paper, but we refer to in the paper, have centered around $800 billion per year. Right? This is from reduction in accidents um, and um, energy savings, things like that. Now, if, if our policies are lousy in implementing it, it may be lower. Right? If they're good, they could be higher. But that's, that's the ballpark people are talking about. And those are annual when it's in place. The total cost that we've been talking about are 200 to 300 billion dollars total. So the benefits far outweigh the costs that we're talking about, but unless we make a conscious change in our policies, these benefits are not going to reach the people who are 
sustainable costs. Employers, we hope, will start planning to tap into their workers' skills and insights to retain and retrain, rather than just planning on laying off people and rehiring. Local stakeholders should start doing uh, start planning forums, including these important stakeholders, and the national stakeholders need to craft, craft a national investment strategy to deal with all of this. And when I mentioned policies that have been out there and tested, here's just a, a partial list of programs that have been evaluated with estimates for the efficacy. And uh, so there's a place to start already on what works and what doesn't. So let me stop here. Um, with just a couple of uh, bottom lines, and we were working on these, so let me state them succinctly. Here we go. There we go. Okay, sorry. <laughs> All that time just to be succinct. All right. <laughs> so, uh, autonomous vehicles are going to affect a lot of people's lives and jobs. Um, the thing to focus on is, even though we provided it, is not the number of jobs lost, because we believe those will be replaced, but on the length of dislocation that comes after those jobs are lost and the income effects, not only to the, those people, but others in the labor market with them, right? in the short run and in the long run. We have a choice. You know, we can be complacent. We can be nihilistic. Right? If, we do e if we go either of those routes, we're going to be making a mistake that will retard innovation going forward. But with advanced planning and action, the third option, then the AV transition can actually be a model for future transitions, one that would put us in good stead to have the kind of robust, innovative economy that we need. And with that, I'll open up to questions for as long as we have. Uh, well, we're kind of out of time. But oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> be, people are going to ask questions after, uh, uh, but let's give people an opportunity to thank you for coming. Oh, thank uh, you. Thank you. Thank you.